Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to another episode of New Jersey is the World. Hope everybody has a great holiday this week. And if you're in Jersey and you're looking for something to do after the holidays, House of Independence, Boxing Day, that's December 26th. There's still some tickets available. Go to the House of Independence website, get some tickets, you come hang out. I'll be there with Andrea Carson, Mike D, Bonaduce, Don Finelli, our friend Sarah Benincasa is stopping by. It, we're going to have a debate on the true meaning of Christmas between Tom Carvel and Rutgers wrestler Nick Suriano. Uh, personalities you've heard impersonated on the show before. We're going to have a trivia contest where people who are patrons at the uh, patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world can win prizes and we will we will be champions playing on their behalf and we're going to have a lot of dumb stuff. We're going to show some humiliating videos from our youth and, and it's going to be fun and dumb and a great, great time. So come hang out in Asbury Park with us, House of Independence. Go to their website for some tickets. Hope to see you there, everybody. Okay, before we get into today's episode, which I'm so excited about, this is a real behind the curtain, curtains look at how Jersey and Jersey politics work. Before that, I want to say, um, Don's episode, a few episodes back about bagels, it really blew up. That episode got a ton of response, ton of people had opinions on bagels in New Jersey and wanted to start off today with a voicemail that I thought was really great. It was funny and it was charming and it was informative, but I've often said, you know, on the, on the show, I'm able to talk about, you know, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. There's a real influence on, on Jersey culture there. We talk a lot about the Italian American influence on Jersey culture there, but I think especially in North Jersey, a lot of us know Jewish influence, very, very strong as well. And we have a caller who called up in response to our bagel episode and broke down her opinions on bagels, specifically from the perspective of her Jewish background. Wanted to get this voicemail out there because I really liked it. Hey guys, my name's Lo. I'm from Somerset County. I wanted to lend a Jewish perspective right quick on the conversation around bagels. Because I listened to your episode, it was super entertaining, and I love what y'all are doing. But I have to, I have to say, I see bagels differently than you as a Jewish American from New Jersey. So I want to zoom out and say that I think there's two categories of bagel places. There's Jewy bagel places, and there's Goyesha bagel places, meaning not really for Jews. So Jewish bagel places, which I would say are the more authentic version of a bagel spot, when you walk in, it's not going to smell like fried food primarily. It's going to smell like onions, coffee, and everything seasoning. You might get a whiff of smoked fish, but shouldn't be overwhelming. There's chatter, but it's never like, uh, it's never like loud, loud. Alternatively, there is the Goyesha style of bagel spot. They're usually overwhelmingly loud for some reason, which is fine. But they smell like Taylor ham. They smell like bacon. They smell like whatever's frying. Uh, and they don't have the same energy. What differentiates these two beyond just the ambiance would be, like, what are they primarily serving? If most people in line are ordering a bagel sandwich, something with a fried egg and some cheese on it, that's not a legitimate spot to me. That's a goyesha bagel place. I think that they do have a right to exist in New Jersey, 
But you can't just compare those and say these are the Jersey bagel spots. You've got to look at some of the more Jewy spots, like some of the spots in Livingston, some of the spots in Melbourne, dare I say. Those are going to be your more Jewish bagel places. And I, I really encourage you to go somewhere, try their bagels with just schmear and maybe some, like, sliced lettuce, tomato, onion, some capers, but nothing fried on there, no eggs, no cheese, no fried meats. And that's how you're going to really test the quality of a place's bagels. I really recommend that. It's a different experience completely. Anyway, wish you well. Thank you for all that you do. Goodbye. Hello, thank you so much. Thanks for breaking it down. Nothing fried, no cheese. If, if the bagel place smells like Taylor Ham, that's its own thing. That's a very good guide. I love it. Now, I think everybody can tell, if you've been following the podcast for the past few months, I've become really fascinated with Jersey politics. We've talked before with political reporter Matt Friedman. He was able to talk to me about the state of New Jersey's political machines, about ballot arranging. Uh, we talked with the head of the New Jersey ACLU. We, we talked with the governor, Phil Murphy. It's a real game of thronesy place when it comes to how politics work around here. And I was contacted by the office of Imani Oakley. Now, she's running for Congress in the 10th Congressional District. That's where I grew up in West Orange. That covers a lot of Essex County, um, Newark, parts of Montclair, the Oranges, everything, all, the whole area. Just You think a lot of Essex County. You think this. This is uh, Congressman Payne's district. And Imani is running ads that explicitly say the machine politics in New Jersey are not good and we got to stop it. And it really got my gears turning. I said, I have to talk to her because how do you run a campaign in a state so defined by its political machines when one of your main talking points is that you want to take out the political machines? This is a daunting task. This is, this is a, a, a battle I had to hear about from the horse's mouth. And was able to talk to Imani Oakley, very inspiring person, running from a very progressive bent on things, has a wealth of knowledge, a depth of knowledge, and a real finger on the pulse in what's happening in the 10th district and Jersey as a whole and how things work. And I was able to hear it all. What's it like being in the trenches in a political fight with a political machine? I'm fascinated by it. I hope you are as well. Can't wait to hear your reactions over at patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. Can't wait to see Eladia over at House of Independence on the 26th. Have a great holiday. Talk to you soon. Hello, listeners of New Jersey is the world. This is Chris Gethard, as always. Uh, proud to be your host. Lucky to be here and very lucky today. This is, I get to have a conversation today with someone who's doing something that is, in my mind, like a fantasy. I'm talking with someone who's actually going for it. Someone who's actually throwing their name in the ring, trying to make change happen. It's Imani Oakley, who's running for Congress in a Congressional District 10, I believe. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I feel I feel really connected because not only do I have like a fascination with New Jersey specifically i've been getting very fascinated as i learn more and more about how jersey politics work and i grew up in the 10th so i know oh. i know kind of the dynamics of the district mm -hmm. and 
I have a lot of questions about that because there's some situations with that districting there that are interesting and weird that I'm sure you have opinions on, but absolutely, yeah, yeah. In a way that we'll get into this, but in a way that almost shows you like New Jersey is so densely populated, but so divided and the way they draw the lines of these districts in a way, I think you could almost look at those as lines that, denote the divisions of of some classist issues and racist issues in jersey and i want to get into that there's so much to talk about but the the first thing i have to say is i've been watching your campaign ads and i'll tell you i was at an event i'm i anybody who listens to the show knows i vote blue full disclosure the governor has taken a liking to me i am uh i've done videos with him i spoke at an event in south orange and uh, before the most recent election and and your uh the person you're primarying donald payne jr was was speaking and i turned to someone i was with i said it's crazy that he's still the congressman he was the congressman like my whole childhood growing up in west orange someone was like oh no that was his dad and it's become clear from your ads that i have a feeling this might be the type of thing that you would like to speak to because i said oh interesting interesting so your ads are not are not being shy about mentioning that there's some legacy politics in Jersey, machine politics in Jersey. So I wanted to start by talking about about this because it's I'm sure very frustrating for you, fascinating for me. I want to know what it's like on the inside. Yeah, uh, you know, it's actually it's not too frustrating for me because what I'm finding is is that everyone is pretty much in agreement that Donald Payne's father was a great congressman. I even agree with that. I think his father was was excellent, did a great job representing this district. But what I'm finding is that when I talk to voters, what they say is, yeah, you know, I really liked his dad a lot, but I'm not sure what his son has really done. He doesn't seem to be stepping up for the community. I actually uh, did some uh, canvassing this past weekend. I spoke to one woman who was like, yeah, you know, I've known the pains for years and, you know, his dad did a great job as congressman, but I have to be honest, you know, he really is not doing the work necessary to really represent the district. Um, and that's why I'm doing this ultimately, because right now is not a time for us to sit back. I mean, it never is, but especially now when we have so many things in this country to fix economically, housing wise, healthcare wise, environmentally, now is not the time for us to have representatives in Congress who just keep their seat warrants after inheriting it from their parents. That is absolutely unacceptable. We need people who are out there active and fixing these problems for real everyday people. You know, I think for, for a lot of folks who are privileged um, and who do inherit seats from their parents, they just see government as kind of like this very, you know, highbrow club where you go and you like make some speeches sometimes and you get paid a lot. And it's very, it's very like highbrow and, and high society. But the reality is, is that people need government. Everyday people need government officials who are going to be working to pass laws and bills and policies that help everyday people. It is not a social club for high society. It is a real thing that should deliver for each and every one of us. And to just have someone who keeps their seat warm is unacceptable. And so, you know, that's why I've decided to, you know, take on this task of unseating Donald Payne. And I feel good about where we are so far. We have already outraised him two to one, our first finance quarter. And I've never run for office. He was, he is a 10 year uh, incumbent. And um, we outraised him two to one, which shows you the momentum is in this area. People are tired of politicians 
who just sit back and rest on their laurels. It's, um, it's, I, I, I have to imagine that for a lot of people who grew up in the 10th, like I did, I am not the only one who might simply not realize that this is not the same person I grew up with. It was now granted I moved out of the 10th. I lived in New York a few years pursuing my, uh, my, my dreams as a comedian. I moved back. I live in the 11th now. Um, so I'm not as in touch, but it kind of shows you how, you know, we had Matt Friedman on, who's a reporter at Politico who writes the New Jersey playbook. And he was explaining to me almost like the Game of Thrones-esque quality of New Jersey politics, how there's the machines really run New Jersey in a way that is not so common elsewhere anymore. And that someone having the same name as a person could go a long way. And there's things like arranging the ballots and the counties having the power to place where you actually appear on that ballot. And he told me some stories that were really mind-blowing about some some stuff that the the norcross machine seemed to have pulled down south with progressive candidates of almost inventing some phantom candidates and phantom party lines so people were confused about whom to vote for so when you're putting out political ads in new jersey saying hey machine politics are a bad thing this is i would have to imagine daunting when running for a democratic seat I just have to imagine running in Essex County just because these are all, I don't think anyone even pretends the, I wouldn't even call them open secrets anymore to say that if you're running in the 10th, having Joe D's blessing goes a long way. Chairman Jones goes a long way. These are some of the people who even I know as just a layman where I go, these are the people who are in the gears and you're effectively saying, Hey, the machine you guys help run is a problematic thing. What, as a candidate, are you as daunt? You seem, I'm like watching you right now because people are listening to us, but we could see each other. I'm like, you're grinning. Like you seem to savor this. Whereas I go, that feels to me like it would be the most daunting thing in the world. Yeah, I don't think it's daunting. I mean, I think, you know, well, first of all, you know, just full transparency, I started my career working in the machine aspect of Jersey politics. So that also be might be why I'm a bit more comfortable with it, as opposed to somebody who maybe worked, you know, in the private sector and then decides to run and then kind of gets railroaded um, by the machine. You know, I dealt with the machine when I was working for elected officials in New Jersey, and I was also the legislative director for New Jersey Working Families Party. So I know all about how the machine operates. It's not surprising to me. Um, and I think that's what makes it a lot more easier to kind of not see it as so scary. Um, but, you know, it's something that I think we need to fight against. It's not something we need to sit back and just let happen. Um, you know, the ballot that you were referring to is New Jersey's corrupt ballot design. Like you said, you know, most people don't know that New Jersey has the most corrupt ballot design in the entire country. We are literally the only state in the country that uses a ballot like this. And it can give uh, advantages to machine-backed candidates up until the double digits uh, percentage. And one of the things I found, because I've actually taught groups, I've taught unions, I've taught um, immigrants' rights groups, I've taught uh, local community groups about the ballot line and what it is and how it operates and how it, you know, is a part of this machine politics that we have in New Jersey. And what I find is twofold. One, it's the best kept secret in New Jersey. Most average everyday voters, unless you work in politics in New Jersey, 
you have absolutely no idea what the line is, which which makes sense, right? Like, why would you, you know, be that random nerd that's studying, uh, you know, ballot design, right? So it makes sense that folks don't know what this is. So most folks who don't work in politics <clears throat> don't know what this is, number one. Number two, though, when they find out about it, they are absolutely upset about it because they feel as though, and they are right, that they are not actually choosing their elected officials, that some other people who are very powerful and very financially well-off, very politically connected, are choosing who they put in front of them, which then in the end does not give them a true choice in who they want to run their communities. And on top of that, what this system creates is a very lax electorate. You have elected officials who know, listen, I've been good to Joe D. I've been good to Leroy. Like, I'm going to be on the party line whether I serve my community or not because I've been good to these people. So you, you also create a system where you have elected officials who don't show up to work. If they do, it's just for like, you know, to kiss babies and, and shake hands, but not to get into the nitty gritty of serving the people of New Jersey. Uh, and that's a problem. And people do notice. Um, you know, before I was running and I was a, just a political organizer here in New Jersey, I would canvass for some candidates. And what I would hear people say is, you know, oh, I don't vote anymore. And I'd ask them, you know, like as an organizer, you kind of get into a conversation about why and try and figure out their thinking so you can get them to, you know, come out and vote. And I would ask these folks why. And they would say, every single year, the same people win and my community does not change. And you know, that's completely true in New Jersey. That's completely true in New Jersey, where you have people who are having more issues with housing, having more issues with the environment, not seeing um, things as far as, you know, like equitable pay and, and good paying jobs happening in their communities, especially the working class black and brown communities. You're not seeing that happen. It's not getting to the people. But the same people are winning every year. So we can't even blame those voters for looking and seeing like these folks win every year and my community never changes. I'm not even going to participate anymore. You can't even blame them because that's how the Tammany Hall machine style of politics in New Jersey creates um, th that bad atmosphere where regular everyday people are not getting things delivered for them. It's funny. I, I, I... I, I know like growing up where I did, there were always a lot of jokes of like, why are taxes so high? And there was, you'd hear people saying like, well, well, you know, whatever the county comptroller does, that person needs an in-ground pool. So the rest of us have these insane time. Like it was just kind of a thing that everybody would joke about. And then you go, oh, no, wait, there's actual no-show jobs. There's actual patronage jobs. There's actual things like, and you go, it's not a joke that there are probably families where it's it's tacking onto their actual bills that they're paying um, via corruption, or at the very least, as you say, are there jobs that are not getting done because people are too comfy and cushy, you know, too protected and cushy in that job? It's really fascinating stuff. And I know, so I mentioned to you, I lived in um, in New York for a while, for a bunch of years when I decided to be an artist. I went on the other side of the river, always maintained my Jersey cred though. I promise you always kept a car and always uh, kept those Jersey license plates on it as long as I was nice. legally allowed to. Um, but I did live in Jackson Heights the year that AOC won. And she was in a position where as I read about you, I go, Oh, Essex County has some really clear cut machine players. She was running against Joe Crowley who what ran the Queens Democratic Party. So there's a very recent 
uh, famous slash infamous example of someone who is in a position that seems to me very similar to where you're at now. Of not everybody knows the names of the machine people who you're up against. She was running against the guy who ran the machine, and I remember meeting her on my corner and her shaking hands, and there being post posters everywhere. And I always tell people when I lived there, it's exactly what you said. You know, on some level, I think AOC was very inspiring. She looked like the district a lot more than Joe Crowley. I would walk the streets in my neighborhood and go, I see a lot more people who look like Alexandria Cortez than Joe Crowley. And I didn't even know that because he didn't even hang posters up. He didn't have people out there flying. She did. And it was just such a clear cut complacency. Um, and I always laugh with people because I go, yeah, Jackson Heights is super progressive. Obviously, it's like a borough, you know, it's a neighborhood in Queens, New York at the same time. She also won because he was completely complacent, and that has to be an element of feeling protected. So I have to imagine that this is purely grassroots for you as well. And I have to wonder, when you're out on the streets, you mentioned you meet people who have known the Payne family for years, people who have such affection for your opponent's father. What's it like being out on the actual trail, meeting people one-on-one? What's the sort of stuff that you're seeing? What's the type of politics right now? that needs to be happening in New Jersey that's not because of the way the system is built. Yeah, no, when I'm out there speaking to people again, you know, people are familiar with him, but they agree that, you know, he does not do anything to serve them. And that's really, you know, when I first got into this, I actually anticipated that I would be having a lot more conversations around, you know, progressivism versus moderates and like what's actually better for beating Republicans, et cetera, et cetera, kind of those more conversations that we're seeing on the national level. And what I'm finding is I don't even get into those conversations. I, I really don't. I, you know, I talked to one guy who, you know, was in West Orange. Um, and I said, you know, hi, my name's Imani Oakley. I'm a progressive uh, Democrat running for Congress. And he was like, you're running against Donald Payne? And I was like, yes. And he was like, what do you need from me? Because literally, I don't even have to like traverse that area because he's done so little that people are like, yeah, you know, we need somebody, we need new energy in there, we need somebody in there who's going to be working for the people. I mean, so far, the only folks that I've run into that have been like staunchly like, I am pro-pain are people who have some type of connection to the machine, if not like actually have been given a job by the machine or work in the political realms of the machine. Um, and people are ready. And I think... You know, it's it's really disheartening because, you know, New Jersey's Democratic machine, if they wanted to, could like actually choose people who will work hard for other people. Like they could do that. There's nothing stopping them from saying like, no, you know what, we're going to back people who actually want to get in there, do hard work for the people and really just be stars for the Democratic Party and for your average working person. But they don't. <laughs> they don't. And people actually notice to the point where I'm not even having conversations about progressivism versus centrism, not even getting there. I'm just getting to the point of I will work for you. And that's enough for people. So, you know, that's that's really what I'm hearing on the ground is people want somebody who will get in there and be active and do the work of delivering for everyday people. One of the big questions I have hearing that is. As soon as you say it's, you go, it is so simple. This is a state that, you know, certainly we have elected Republican governors. You look at this recent election, you look at like the massive impact Ocean County had, you go, okay, you see a lot of the swing voters going back and forth. But by and large, you're right. These 
machines could be picking superstars. I guess one of the big questions is, why do you think that doesn't happen? Mm -hmm. Superstars are hard to control. I mean, it just comes down to that. Um, when you are somebody who really knows your stuff, who is really gonna get out there and work for folks, um, you're harder to control. Uh, you know, the reason why they put up kind of these more lackluster figures who, I mean, I've seen people get put on commissions who, you know, know nothing about the commission. They're putting on like, know nothing about that background. You know, I've seen people promoted to positions um, in like different places in the party where it's just kind of like that person that like, they, what for what? Like they barely have any experience. How are they getting like this huge job, right? But what ends up happening is because those folks know that they would never have those positions without the party bosses anointing them to those positions, it's a lot easier for party bosses to kind of hang that over their head and then control them because they say, basically, I made you, I can unmake you just as easily. Whereas when you have somebody that's independent and actually talented and actually hardworking and actually, you know, knows what they're doing and will get out there and talk to people, it's a lot harder to hang that over their head because ultimately when they do a good job, you, you can say, we're not going to endorse you anymore, but guess who, who will endorse them? The people, the voters will endorse them because they did a good job for the voters. So you, the party, uh, you know, machine and the party bosses no longer have that leverage when they put truly good people up in these positions. And that's why they don't do it. They like the control and ultimately the power more than they like delivering for actual people. Now, I want to get into something personal to me. I mentioned growing up in the 10th. I grew up in West Orange and you're campaigning. So that means you know exactly the area that you, you, you know, I grew up right next to Our Lady of Lord's School. Okay. Um, I've also read, I read, I believe you grew up in Montclair. Yes. Um, and I think in an, like I grew up right by where West Orange, Orange, and Montclair all kind of smashed okay. together. Yeah. And I've read some really interesting things you've put out there about the redistricting things that happen mm -hmm. right now. Because and they affect me both in my past and present. Because as I mentioned, yeah. I live in the eleventh. I live in Morris County now. Right. I live in an area that is all these Reagan Republicans. Mm -hmm. I saw lawn signs up during the last presidential election on my block that said, "I'm a Republican, but not an idiot. Vote Biden." Where I mm -hmm. went, okay, these are the anti-Trump Republicans. These are mm -hmm. in the eleventh. These yeah. are the Mikey Sherrill Republicans. These are the, mm -hmm. she can straddle that line. But there's some really fascinating stuff happening right now. Decisions being made that are going to affect you and your election and voters where, again, a thing that voters don't necessarily know, the same way you said, it's in Jersey, right? When we leave this state and people have to pump their gas for the first time, they don't always know that that's a thing. And they don't know that their ballots are being arranged in a very weird way that doesn't happen anywhere else. Voters might not know also that there's this like chess match happening mm -hmm. where different parts of different towns are being sort of split off and thrown into different congressional districts. And right now, Mikey Sherrill's in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm in the 11th, so I'm going. I would love to hang on to Mikey Sherrill. I think she's mm -hmm. great. I see the tenor of this district, and I understand that it could swing back easily, and I would love as a Democrat for it to not. But – Right now, they're talking about breaking off an area of Montclair that's currently in the 10th and mm -hmm. adding it to the 11th. I find that so fascinating. I have no idea who makes these decisions, how often they happen, and how they affect things overall. 
what is going on there? Yes. I'm, I basically, I'm too dumb to understand. It seems no, like no, no. Take a big chunk of voters and protect Mikey. Well, that has to happen at the expense of someone else. And it also happens without voters having the agency to be deciding that themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so what's going on? Because I'm yeah. an idiot and I'm going, this <laughs> seems weird. And this seems like the type of thing that's being controlled by a bunch of like dudes in a room somewhere is the sense yes. I get. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, So I'll start first with who makes the decision. In New Jersey, it is incredibly important to power map. That is the most important thing that you can do just to inform yourself is to power map. And if you actually look at the folks who are sitting on the current redistricting commission right right now, you can trace them back to the governor, which means you can trace them back to Brendan Gill, which means you can trace them back to Joe D. Um, if you look at, there are actually some sitting elected officials on the redistricting commission, which, you know, that's, if anything hints at this isn't going to be as fair of a process as we would like and as democratic a process as we like, it's having actual sitting elected officials being a part of redrawing these districts. Um, and so that's who sits on it. And, you know, depending on the way thing, how things turn out, you can power map and see like, oh, I see why this person wants this town here. Oh, I see why they want this line drawn here. So the power mapping is extremely, extremely important because those are the folks that are making the decisions. Um, and it's not as easy as just, oh, these folks are independent. They won't be answering to anyone. They don't. They answer to a party boss just like every other sitting elected whatever in New Jersey, number one. Number two. We all want to protect Mikey Shell from Republicans. I have been a Democrat literally my entire voting career. My family, I come from a family of Democrats. Um, you know, like that's, that's nothing new for me. It's not going to change for me. It is what it is. I don't want to see another Democrat replaced by a Republican. I genuinely, in my spirit, believe that that is dangerous for everyday people, like legitimately dangerous. Um, so none of us want to see Mikey Sherrill get replaced by a Republican, right? But on top of that, there are ways to protect Mikey Sherrill that don't throw black voters under the bus. And right now, the thing that is being talked about and being pushed very, very heavily by some very self-interested folks, and by self-interested, I mean high donors for Mikey Sherrill, people who have Mikey Sherrill as a client, those folks who have an interest in Mikey Sherrill, but who also have really, really deep ties to Montclair politically and financially, are pushing for all of Montclair to be put into the 11th. Now, what would that do, right? There is a historically black part of Montclair um, that is heavily black. It has more black folks than Maplewood, has more black folks than South Orange and more black folks than I believe West Orange as well. Um, And those folks have very similar makeup as far as not only race, but also culture, also housing situation. There are a lot more renters here in this area of of Montclair, uh, the black, the historically black district, than in um, the 11th where it's mostly homeowners and it's also class. A lot of folks here are working class and maybe some of them made it to the middle class, but they have, they are in no way comparable to really the amount of wealth that really exists in NJ 11. And what the, the talk is from folks who, from political insiders who have personal reasons for wanting to put all of Montclair into NJ 11th is we need this in order to protect Mikey. Number one, that isn't true. There are other ways to draw the map that actually make NJ 11 more democratic and actually lean democratic that don't include 
cutting out black voters from Montclair. So number one, that's not true. But number two, even if they did do it, that would make those black voters only have a, about a 6% um, black voters in that area. So NJ11 would only have about 6% black voters and it would be overwhelmingly white. So it's something in like the 60 plus range of white voters, which then when it comes to issues like, hey, let's just be frank here, policing, over-militarization of police, CRT, critical race theory, which we've known is going to be you know, a, a very big issue and, it, and Republicans have made it a big issue. But those things are very, very important to black voters and black people. And you're going to place this amount of black voters, which would only then bring the voting population, the black voter population, NJ11 to 6%, you're going to place them in an overwhelmingly white district where their votes aren't gonna matter because they're never going to have enough numbers to have things that they want. And then also their cultural background really isn't gonna matter much because they don't have much numbers. And so why hurt black voters in that way when there are other ways to cut districts that place people who are culturally more similar to NJ11, who are financially more similar to NJ11, who are racially more similar to NJ11, protect Mikey that way, and then not hurt that slice of black voters. It doesn't make sense until you start to do the power mapping, until you start to look at where does the money flow from. Then it starts to make sense. But in any case, there is there should be no reason that Democrats, Democrats, who are supposed to be the party of tolerance, who are the, supposed to be the party where we accept cultural and racial differences, who are supposed to be the party to protect racial minorities in this country, right? There is no reason they should be pushing to essentially obliterate the black voting power just to protect one white incumbent, which is Mikey Sherrill. I've read that the other option is let's give Mikey Milburn. And as you break it down like this, Makes a lot more sense to me. Milburn, having grown up directly in between Milburn and Montclair, I can say it seems like Milburn would love Mikey Sherrill, and there's much less of an issue with Milburn than the, the specific pocket of Montclair that you're talking about. Now, it, it leads to another thing I wanted to pick your brain about, which I hope is worth your time because it's a little bit less focused on the election specifically and a little bit more on sort of Jersey and this way we live here. Because as you say, I'm, I'm actually shocked here. I know the exact section of Montclair that you're talking about. I grew up walking from West Orange over to Bloomfield Ave. That's where we'd go do our shopping. I mentioned, like I grew up, my, my mom grew up on the same block as Jimmy Buffs and the Star Tavern. This is right where Orange, West Orange, Montclair meet. So I, I know the exact, I can see it in my mind, like that exact area around Grove Street. I used to go play in Nishuane Park. Like I, I, mm -hmm. I know it. There's I'm endlessly fascinated and I talk about it in different ways on our, on our dumb little podcast, a lot of the relationship between the urban areas of New Jersey and the suburban areas of New Jersey. And I feel like the 10th is currently drawn in a way that so clearly ties into what I'm saying, where growing up in West Orange, I go, you look at the line between the 10th and the 11th. And it pretty much is the line between the areas that people in town would call up the hill and down the hill. And up the hill is economically very different than down the hill historically. Now that's starting to change because everybody knows Maplewood's the new Brooklyn and my and West Orange and South Orange is the new Maplewood. And now West Orange is becoming the new South Orange apparently. So we're starting to see that, but that ties into some of these issues. Similar to what you're saying, 
most people who hear the word Montclair, let's be honest, are shocked to hear you say there's a section of Montclair that has more black voters than South Orange or West Orange or Maplewood. I think most people's common conception of Montclair is train stations and artist friendly and she shops out on Bloomfield Ave and those big mansions up behind the art museum in Upper Montclair. Now that's growing up in West Orange where I did this is the Montclair kids, man. The the you know, that was they think they're better than us. But these are both towns. I think West Orange very visibly and I think Montclair maybe to people's surprise if they hear, oh Montclair, that's you know, oh that's like that's like North Jersey and then Central Jersey has Red Bank and that's that, that right shops and things like that. But these towns are extraordinarily diverse and yet you see congressional maps drawn in a way that highlight the diversity in a way that to me also highlights the way people are living very, very separately within the same town's borders. And in a way that I look back on my childhood and I go, man, I grew up down the hill. Now my family was pretty solidly middle-class, but I understood the difference that friends of mine had growing up the hill. They got to go to the one middle school. We went to the other middle school. There were kids. And I think another thing that, and you would know better than I would. So I, I don't mean to speak out of turn, but I always heard that there were so many families that sent their children to private school in Montclair that the high school was actually not benefiting. It had a reputation going back to my dad growing up of saying like, oh yeah, Montclair High kids always real tough, tough. That was a tough high school. And you go, well, so many kids are going to Montclair Kimberly. And it seems like maybe the public schools are getting the short end of the stick. This kind of division between wealth and class. And it obviously also breaks down around race lines and historically even some religious lines. I go, it's really weird to look at a congressional map and go, oh, Anywhere that was considered down the hill where I grew up is in the 10th. That was the quote unquote bad part of town. And now it's West Orange. Bad is relative. Any place that was up the hill, which was the rich kids, is in the 11th. Feels very, very weird that someone actually took a pen and drew that down a map because that feels to me like segregation in some ways. Obviously not segregation. I, especially being of my background, don't have a right to throw that word around carelessly. But I will say that there is some very obvious part of me that goes, someone drew that map and decided which sections were for whom and which district certain people should be attached to. That feels very, very weird. And you, at the end of the day, go, someone did that intentionally. And I'm just wondering if you've had to think about that as someone aiming to represent the 10th, because it seems like very, very much like the 10th represents what I'm talking about. Like, let's grab yeah. the pocket. Let's, let's look at some areas that historically or reputationally, now I'm older and wiser and I don't buy into stereotypes, but people might go, okay, this is the parts of West Orange that you attach to East Orange. This is the parts of West Orange that you attack, attach to Livingston and Milburn. Let's draw the map that way. Montclair, similar thing. Upper Montclair, you go in the 11th. Now, the part of Montclair that people don't think about when they think about Bloomfield Ave and the Claridge Cinema and all this stuff and the Montclair Film Festival, you're going in the 10th. That feels weird to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the problem predates redistricting. 
And that's that's really the issue. So the reason why you have folks who are living, as you say, you know, down the hill that are tend to be more people of color, black folks in this instance, uh, more renters, more people of lower socioeconomic status is because they can't afford to live up the hill. Um, and you have issues of redlining that also put people into the same neighborhoods, but you know, irrespective of uh, redistricting. You have um, unequal pay, issues of unequal pay, that really people who are up the hill are more likely to have more, more pay because of their oh, race yeah. and class and inheritance, et cetera. Um, you have the actual like uh, generational wealth also is another issue, you know, like my mother was the first person to be able to like buy a house in Montclair. And a lot of folks in this area, in the black area of Montclair are like the first generation who are coming from kind of like more working class backgrounds and more cities. And they're typically looking for better schools for their kids. That's usually how it happens. And, you know, these border areas that like border right on like the more impoverished urban areas um and that, that are suburban typically folks move there because it's a little bit more affordable um and so these are issues that actually predate redistricting that have a lot more to do with how we've handled um issues of generational wealth how we've handled issues of equal pay how we've handled issues of redlining and housing and these are all irrespective of uh redistricting concerns the issue comes in with redistricting is that it's not so much purposeful with like the I'm going to keep the have nots with the have nots and the has with the haves, but it comes in where you're where you're basically saying like, honestly, if we put some of these have nots and they're going to be a gross minority in a sea of haves, they're going to have even less. Um, and that's really what we're looking at with regards to redistricting. And you're absolutely right. You know, growing up, like <clears throat> I would have. I knew people from the high school um, who lived in the more upper parts, <coughs> excuse me, of Montclair, and they were like not allowed to go past a certain point on Bloomfield Avenue. Um, when I would walk on the other side, like closer to uh, to Bellevue Avenue, uh, where the um, where the movie theater is over there, like I would walk down the street and people would look at me, and I've lived in Montclair my entire life. Like they would look at me, kind of like, "What are you doing walking down the street?" I'm like, "I've lived in this town <laughs> my entire life. It's just as much my town as it is yours. Maybe I might have even lived here longer." than some folks. I've lived in Montclair literally all my life except for four years where I had to move to Newark so my brother could move into our house here so we didn't lose it to foreclosure. So other than that, I've lived in Montclair um, my, my entire life since I, I was born in St. Peter's in New Brunswick. And then literally when I was like however many hours or days they allow a newborn baby to come home, I was brought uh, to Montclair to an apartment down the street from the house I'm living in now. I lived there until I was about three or four. Then we moved into this house in Montclair. And I've lived here my entire life. And yet, when I would walk in certain areas of Montclair, I would be eyed suspiciously. Like, what are you even doing in this part? And I had friends who I'd went to elementary school with who lived in that part. That's what I was doing there. I lived in the town. I'm allowed to walk here. That's what I was doing there. So you're absolutely right. There is absolutely this, um, this idea of the haves and the haves not. And I actually think it's bleeding into the redistricting in the amount of just gross lack of empathy for the obliteration of the black vote here. I think people see that bottom part of Montclair as kind of like, this is an area to be 
um, they don't say this word, but essentially that like, this is an area to be built up, which means like gentrified. You know, this is an area of Montclair that, you know, if we just like change some things, it would match the rest of the spirit of Montclair, which like, you know, what do you mean by change some things? Because it's pretty, it's pretty Montclair to me. I've been here for 31 years. Um, and I think it plays into the gross lack of empathy that we are seeing among folks who are just like, yeah, just put it in Mikey Sherrill's district. Who cares about obliterating the black vote? You know, they'll, Mikey's a good person, like she'll listen to them, but it's not so much about Mikey as it is about the overwhelmingly white, upper class, suburban voters who really culturally and economically do not have anything in common, have completely separate concerns that would drown out the concerns of this slice of Montclair that have a lot more similar issues um, in common with folks in East Orange and Orange and North than they do with folks in Chatham um, or you know places in Morris County um, and certainly Sussex County. So yeah, I, I definitely think that it's it's purposeful, but I think the the bad reasons why it's purposeful are things that are outside of redistricting. There are historic things around not fighting redlining, not fighting equal pay, not fighting you know uh, generational wealth the way we really need to in this country. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, like you know. I hate to say it, but like white flight and, you know, which ties right into redlining where I saw that growing up, Harrison Avenue was kind of a, you know, I hate to say it, but I look back at my childhood. This is, you know, 35 years ago where you go, okay, this was the, this was the Catholic part of town, mostly Irish Catholic. And then all of a sudden people start moving in on another side of Harrison Avenue and you see a lot of houses go for sale and you go, I can't believe this is real. I, everybody gets along. It's just, you'd like to think in a perfect world that a town all being represented in one district would mean that everyone in that town needed to be taken seriously and would get the same type of res representation and that the rising tide would raise all boats. But I think you're right that the, I don't think it's cynical. I thought, I don't think it's me giving into cynicism to say, no, what would happen is the people from the areas of town that we're talking about, just they're going to get eaten alive. And I don't think you're wrong that it's not cynical to go. It feels like a much easier pathway towards more condos and townhouses and more shuttle buses to train stations in areas that used to, you know, it used to be, oh, that's too far from the train. And that's why the city people don't buy there. It's just very sad to me to see that separation. Although I do get the sense compared to when I grew up that at the very least, young people now are calling BS on that. And I thank God I went to West Orange High because it was every type of person. But, you know, like, a lunchroom where there could be a kid with a brand new car on his 17th birthday in the same lunchroom as someone on food stamps. I, I would actually say statistically that was happening. It would be more rare to have a lunchroom where there weren't both those types of people. Mm -hmm. I do think that young people now are saying that is a source of strength and we have to start treating it as a source of strength in order to help everybody in this room become a more well-rounded person with more opportunities. Whereas it feels like historically, even looking back, you know, when I was in high school 25 years ago, where I could feel these separations are these weird, unspoken things that we allow to stand. And you just see how, um, you just see how unfair it is to some people. And it's, I, I will say, there's such 
they're trying to turn the word progressive into a boogeyman right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I am someone I, you know, now I'm a 41 year old dad who lives in Morris County, but I will say the one thing I am, you know, the one thing that I am not swayed by with these arguments that progressivism is a boogeyman is at the core of that word is progress. And I see real youthful energy into it. And I see a real spirit of like, can we call BS on the nonsense that's keeping us apart? Because there's so much more to be gained um, by letting go of those old attitudes. So in that sense, I just am I am so thankful that there are so many people all over the country going like, nope, like we gotta, we have to at, at least shake things up where people know this all can't happen behind closed doors with, and again, he, I, I was in his district when he lost, you go, a guy like Joe Crowley should not be calling the shots for the Bronx and Jackson Heights and Queen. he just shouldn't. And at the very least, the people who look like that in Essex County probably need to know it can't happen behind closed doors too much longer or else voters are going to go away. And I really, I am really inspired to hear that you're out there going for it. And I hope at the very least, these people are pooping in their pants a little bit with fear that you've come (laughs) along. I say that so genuinely, so genuinely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, thank you so much for that. I, I really do. I agree. You know, one of the things that I'm, I'm really fearful of is that if, you know, if the Democrats, the machine Democrats in New Jersey don't get it together, we're going to see more and more and more Republican wins starting out on the local level and then growing. And the reason I say this is because, you know, we can you can wax poetic all day about how, like, you know, voters should educate themselves and, you know, they should be informed of, like, who has good policy and who doesn't. But at the end of the day, if the people that the Democratic machine are choosing to be up and be elected officials are so lackluster or so inactive or frankly so conservative themselves that voters look at them and say, honestly, this Republican person, they seem sharp, they seem into it. And frankly, policy-wise, I don't really see much of a difference between them. I might as well go for, for this Republican. I have such a fear that that's going to start happening more and more and more. So I agree with you. I really hope, you know, if anything, I hope, I do hope they're pooping their parents, but I also hope (laughs) that they're learning something, right? That like, listen, this, I am a person who has never run for office before. I outraised a 10 year incumbent two to one, right? That shows something, that shows something. So I also hope they're learning and maybe re-evaluating how they operate as a democratic machine. And hopefully they start to do things that are more fair and really more conducive to putting people who are actually willing and wanting to do this work of helping people because it is work. It, it's not it's not a social club. Like this is work and it's a job. And it's a job that has actual impact on real people's everyday lives in a way that's like profound and where we are in an era where if you cost someone a few thousand dollars or even a few hundred dollars, you might really give some parents a headache and choices they have to make about where they spend their money for their kids. And it's, that's just very real. And and you have to be compassionate. And I'm totally with you. I've noticed something just on the local level here in Morris County, which is 
there are a lot of Republicans that are starting to take environmentalism seriously. And I think it's because we live near the Great Swamp. And I think it's because we're in a watershed. And because if it rains for more than 10 minutes, the power goes out and then everybody yells at JCPL. So there's a lot of, I've noticed the local level politicians out here, they don't use the words climate change because that's a boogeyman they've been taught to avoid, but they'll say extreme environment. We, ha we have to make sure that extreme environmental conditions aren't affecting our power lines. And that I think will make a lot of people, like you say, go, I'm, I lean Democrat, but if the Republicans are going to start voting for environmental stuff, and it seems like they kind of have their act together more in the that's right. That's how they're trying to, on a national level right now, say like, look how disorganized everything is. The Democrats promised you all this stuff and they're not doing it. And, and it's, I hate to say it, but you go, it's hard. To, the amount of debates I had to watch about, well, how radical should the overhaul of healthcare be? And every debate was about that. And you go, and it seems like what we've done is no change. You're going to have a lot of people going, well, if the Republicans are going to fight for the environment too, and they actually seem to have their act together, maybe it's not so bad. That's probably how you get, right? A lot of people, mm -hmm. once they hit their 40s and 50s, you become parents who start peeling off as Democratic voters. Whereas, like you said, you know, you said earlier on, you said, we have to start taking the idea of demilitarizing the police seriously. And I go, now defund the police. They have managed to successfully turn that again into another boogeyman phrase. Mm -hmm. And you can think about the branding and if that was smart branding all you want, but the idea that maybe police shouldn't have tanks and shouldn't be able to dress up as super soldiers. I think people in Summit and Chatham would agree with that, but I think we've got to get really active and it needs to be very real. And just thinking from a Jersey sense, thinking about the division, like you said, the 10th butts up against the 11th. I've lived in both. Now I go, well, that's where you're going to get people who get really active on both. Because if you, if you live in this state and you live in the areas we're talking about, and you want to pretend that the community's relationship with police is the same in East Orange as it is in Summit, well, then you're just being willfully crazy and obtuse. So that's the type of thing where you go, I wish I wish that the machine leaders would go, let's just crush that issue, community policing. Let's make it, let's make it where everyone feels like police are on their side and are with them and where a kid in Milburn is going to have a relationship with the police that is similar to a kid in North, to a kid in Orange, to a kid in East Orange. You'd think that you could get it together and go, let's pick some issues, show how it can work, show how it can move. Let's make Jersey the place where things start to move positively. And I feel like everyone with a blue streaker in the state would rally around that. But some of the decisions that roll down from up top make it feel like things move slow in a disorganized way where things get promised in one election and there's no movement before the next election. I don't see how anyone expects that to end well. And I feel like in speaking to you, one of the things that I'm very happy about is it feels to me like you are representing the idea of we have to get active now. These are our jobs. Let's punch the clock. Let's get to work. And I think that that should wake everybody up, should wake everybody up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, you know, Republicans, when they run people, and again, I'm not talking about their values here, their values I completely disagree with. But politically, they put up their best and brightest because they are gunning to win. And issues like climate change and issues like defund the police. Here's the thing. 
they can be talked about in a way that brings those more centrist folks on, those people who maybe might say vote for um, you know, a Democratic president, but then turn around and vote for a Republican governor, right? You can bring them more to be voting more often blue and Democratic. But what that requires is that you are actually putting people in seats who, I don't want to, I don't really want to use the word stars, but I think it kind of gets at what I'm saying is people who are out there, who will, you know, talk to voters, who will be active, who will hold events, who will hold town halls and talk to people about this issue and actually really get in the community, who will talk to the press about these issues, who will go to work in Washington and show that they can deliver on these issues, right? That brings people over. And that you can almost think of almost any issue when people have their stuff together and they are interacting with folks, there is nothing that can break the nonsense more easily than a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I have had so many conversations uh, because you know I do I do do call time as a kid and I talk to people you know across the nation and I have had so many people who start off the conversation saying like I'm really mad at progressives right now for you know there's a number of reasons they they'll they'll mention and then I talk to them I say like you know I hear you on that and then I start to talk to them about their issues and talk to them about my stance and what I want to do and how I want to fix these issues by the end of the conversation they're completely turned around but you can't do stuff like that unless you have people who are willing to get in there and do the work and so you know thank you so much for having me on and thank you for allowing me to have this conversation because it's really going to be critical for us moving forward and I, there's really no way around it and there's no sugarcoating it if democrats really want to help people and want to save our republic from going into the hands of republicans then we are really going to have to step it up and stop this and at least in new jersey stop this nonsense tammany hall machine style of politics and choosing only yes people to put up choose your best and brightest so we can actually win things for everyday people i love that i love that you mentioned town halls because they're i will say my whole life, 41 years old, the two Congress people who I was well aware they were my Congress people and I was well aware what they were doing were Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Mikey Sherrill, who are two extraordinarily different people and politicians, but who both hold town halls relentlessly. Yep. And right there, you can see from one end of the of the Democratic pendulum to the other, the effectiveness of like, no, I'm actually Mikey Sherrill. It's not even an option. I get so phone calls from weird Jersey numbers and I pick them up and it'll go, oh, it's, it's your representative, Mikey Sherrill. We're about to have a town hall. Stay on the line. I'm like, all right. I, and AOC, I would see her on the corner getting protested. It's lovely. Now I am excited by this conversation. I'm excited by you. I'm excited for the 10th being someone who's a native of the 10th, who, understands a, a lot of what you're talking about. When I read your opinions on redistricting, I started chuckling going, they're going to try to peel off some votes in Montclair just to do it, just to do it. And it's a short-term thing. And then, and you're right, right? The unspoken implication is all those people are probably going to be moving out of town soon anyway. Like that's the sad, cynical thought. So hearing that you are drawing some lines and calling that out, Kudos to you. Kudos to you. Now, Thank let you. me just close by asking you this, because yeah. to bring it back to the machine stuff. So I mentioned, like, I got asked to speak at this event in South Orange, and the governor spoke, and Chairman Jones spoke, and I was very flattered to be there. I mean, I'm like literally an idiot comedian, and not even a particularly famous, like, I've been on a couple episodes of The Office after Steve Carell left. Like, it's cool. But I realized they bring me in, and I kind of said I to the to the aide who asked me to speak, I said, so off the record, 
you're bringing in a comedian the night before election day. You want me to make some jokes that like candidates themselves can't make right now, right? And she was like, just say what, go from your heart and have fun. And I was like, got it. So I said some things about Jack and I got quoted in the ledger, the couple of my punchlines, and then it looked like he was going to win. And I was sitting there like sort of one third joking, two thirds, not going like, oh my God, is my garbage never going to get picked up again? Like I messed with the guy who's going to be governor now. I have to ask, because you have such poise and you have like a smile on your face every time you ask you about the machine, but historically machines, they aren't forgiving to rabble rousers. And the people who want to publicly say like, I'll poke the bear and say this system is wrong. Do you have any worries that like, you're going to get messed with because this is Essex County politics. Like the reputation is they'll mess with you if they have to. So I wonder how hard you had, you've had to think about that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I have worries. I have expectations. I absolutely expect them to do it. That's and the I think, badass answer. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's, um, you know, again, that comes with me knowing what I stepped into, right? Where typically progressive candidates in New Jersey just kind of like have goodwill. They want to do it. They want to serve their community. They step in having no idea what the machine is capable of. Um, I'm very familiar with it. I'm very familiar with who everyone is. Um, but I will give one of my favorite quotes. Uh, it's a Bruce Lee quote, which is, um, you know, boards don't hit back. I do. Um, and that would be my message to the machine. Oh. Um, so, you know, if they want to hit, we, we can do it. You know, uh, Donald Payne actually tried to hit me with something saying that I was lying on his LGBTQ plus record. Um, and then we hit him again in the uh, in our press releases. We hit him in our new ad showing the video where he's kind of like, yeah, I don't really know if I support gay marriage or not. So they can hit me if they want to, but I absolutely do hit back. So, you know, that's kind of where I am with that. I love it. I love it. So you're if they want to turn off your easy pass and not tell you and you get all these tickets <laughs> in the mail or whatever, that's theoretical. Whatever these whatever these people can do from their positions on high, you're. You're I also have it. an attorney as well who is yeah, not based in New Jersey. So, I mean, there's also that I am not afraid to sue somebody. <laughs> right. There you go. And that goes a long way. But again, I have to say it's, it's, it's really inspiring. Um, I, am, I am fascinated by the machines, but I also see that it's weird backroom stuff and backroom stuff, you know, festers and rots and, and kills people's confidence and I can see how you're standing up and saying all this. And hopefully it brings a lot of confidence back to people. And I, uh, I wish you the best. I will be watching in fascination to see, uh, you know, you've already outraised your opponent. And I have a feeling this momentum is going to keep rolling and it's going to be a thing they're going to have to pay a lot of attention to. And I have to say at the very least, voices like yours are critical because they can't not pay attention with people like you out there. And that is vital. And I thank you for it. Listen, thank you for having me on and thank you, you know, for this conversation, because I really do think a lot of the nonsense that goes on is because we aren't having enough of these types of conversations that get out to everyday folks. So thank you for this opportunity. Um, and, you know, I'm glad to come back anytime you need me. Oh, I, I am. I will be watching and uh, following up. And if you ever need us for anything, let us know if you need to if you need to sh fire some shots and there's a. <laughs> And they've paid off the journalists or whatever. Let us know, because although we we do work cheap, if the machine's listening, I work cheap too. So if you want to pay me <laughs> off, I work pretty cheap. No, I'm, it doesn't. 
this doesn't really matter. Anyway, this mm -hmm. has been a really, really great and eye-opening and informative. And thank you again. Thanks so much for having me.